When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of July 2016. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's words correspondent, and I'm joined today by the critic and author Megan O'Rourke. Hi, Megan. Hey, Katie. And by Parul Segal of the New York Times Book Review, also a critic, editor, and writer. Hi, Parul. Hey, Katie. Today, we are discussing Rebecca Traister's multifaceted book, All the Single Ladies, which is subtitled Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. It is a meaty, comprehensive account of how unmarried women have shaped and continue to shape American political, social, and economic realities. Blending historical research, original reportage, and personal memoir, it is passionately invested in the diversity of women's experiences, which is so refreshing as a lot of pop sociology or thinky provocation about modern ladies feels find the lives of white or privileged women. And it has a lot to say about not just marriage, but the many other possible relationships in a woman's life with, say, her children, parents, friends, and co-workers. Traster covers a frightening amount of ground, but I'd love to start off by simply asking you guys whether she convinced you that being single is the way to go. In other words, do you think that Traster believes that singleness is better than marriage for women and for society, or just different? Yeah, so I'm not sure that her goal is to persuade us that being single is better than being married. I think one of the really interesting things about this book and one of the things that I ended up feeling made Traster such a good guide is that she has this way, she's very sensible. Sensible is not always a, a compliment when it comes to a writer or a critic, but in this case it really is. She has this way of looking at issues that have kind of calcified into place and opening them up again in, in a very rational, pragmatic, but emotionally intuitive way. And it, one of the tensions in this book are the, there, is that there are these moments where she seems to sort of verge on being prescriptive about, you know, what might be superior to, you know, you know, the loneliness of the single person is superior to the false loneliness of the marriage, right? These things that we all end up navigating these questions of like, what kind of compromises do we want to make in our life? And the book itself ends up mimicking that, right? But I think she does a really good job of 
just when you think she's about to kind of, I don't know, in an oversimplistic way value something, she complicates what she's saying. And really what she's saying here, I think, is that single women have really shaped this country's progress in ways that we may not know. And while single women are often demonized, especially by the conservative press, in many ways they've been very beneficial for American politics and that certainly they have a profound influence on American politics today. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that was striking to me is that in this vision, she just she shows how salient marriage is in ways that I wasn't necessarily disposed to think of it as being like the defining thing about a woman. But, mm-hmm. you know, whether she's married or not. But she really persuasively argues that if you're sort of navigating a world that's not built to accommodate you, you're necessarily radical in all these other ways. Like you are perhaps on the vanguard of of the abolitionist movement or all kinds of other progressive uh, social movements. And there's just some way in which not being married becomes really crucial to your identity. And I just thought it was fascinating for to hear her talk about that. Well, she describes how society is based on the unit of a couple. And it's not even just people's expectations or how you feel about it, but it's taxes, it's schedules, it's uh, it's all of these actually like material underpinnings that presume that there are two, and you're going to be two people that take care of it, two people that raise a child um, in case somebody gets sick. So I think that that's, yeah, she, she really like sort of tweezes that out well. I do think, however, I mean, I don't think she's prescriptive. I think she's got a very, very light touch. Actually, I also have the word sensible emblazoned all over my notes. And I just, um, <laughs> but I think that I think she is very celebratory and I think explicitly celebratory of single women. Um, uh, lots of chapters end on like little slips like, you know, single women are coming to save marriage or a new epic has begun. And um, and it makes sense, I think, because you, you like, what has a single woman not been vilified for? You know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that and even as thinking about the voices in the book, um, again, like the book is both like cultural analysis, and then she talks to I think like a hundred women who are very frank and very very interesting about their experiences of, of both being married and being single. But I found, and maybe this is just me, but it seems like you know there weren't so many voices talking about loneliness or the bleakness or the difficulties or just sort of even struggling the bills and stuff. Like it was overwhelmingly women sort of, and maybe necessarily so, defending their lives and sort of defending their friendships and saying that I was told it would be one thing, but it's another. Um, so yeah, I think, I think um, for me, it was, it did sort of come down to a celebration of this woman in history, in American history, and this woman now. And uh, yeah, and just sort of like this unspoken debt we owe this, Figure. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's totally true, and I he's persuaded me. <laughs> but I guess, I guess I'll I guess I'll have to. And in fact, there's sort of an interesting reading of a passage of my book that kind of does this, and a book I wrote, which we can come back to in a sec or not. But she she does. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I totally agree with how you characterize it, and I think she 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 of course herself starts the book when she's single and ends it when she's married. I believe she's single. She's at least not married yet. She may get married during the course of the book. And so the book is interesting in that sense in that she's trying to kind of navigate to her own relationship to this trajectory. And certainly part of the celebration of singleness is that she says, you know, what's distinctive about right now is that even when women are ending up getting married, they're often spending this decade or decade and a half unmarried. And that that's shaping them and social, you know, and 
politics and the social world and the sexual world we inhabit in a really different way from the past where it tended to be more of a you get married, you don't get married pattern. And that was really interesting to me. And I was struck by how much things have changed. I think one of the sort of most useful aspects of this book is that, one, it reminds you about how nasty the rhetoric about a single women has been, uh, especially single mothers. I think I've forgotten or repressed some of it, but there's just, uh, or even like just, just how bad things have been for, for women in America in general. Like the, the sheer fact that the House of Representatives got their first ladies' room in 2011 came as a horrifying shock. But, um, but even the sort of the, the sheer fact of singleness in America, she says, you know, for a hundred years from 1890 to 1980, the median age of marriage didn't change. It was 20 years old in America, which is astonishing when you think of what else changed, you know? Um, and now it's jumped to 27. And I think that, for me, one of the things as I was reading this book, I kept wanting to see, oh, okay, so this has changed, but how much is it substantively changing society and changing politics? And I was wondering how, whether you guys had thoughts about that. Like, is this new cohort, the sort of new independent nation, really shaping things quite as much as she says they are or we are? I mean, I think one way to approach that is to say how potent a political class is this new group of single ladies? How are they actually affecting change? But I think another, the case that she makes more persuasively or the change that she laid out for me or the takeaway that I got was that even if they aren't actually able to affect policy uh, materially, their needs, the needs of this single class are kind of inextricable from the needs of kind of the minimum uh, wage laborer and the single mother is more likely to be below the poverty line. And so sort of having a more responsive state or better welfare program like that is actually about single women, even if it's not um, on its face about single women. Yeah, I mean, I think the question you posed is exactly the right question. And I guess my my critique of this book would be that, you know, it's a book I think is incredibly valuable. My my one critique of it would be that I felt at times it hadn't fully metabolized what it was, the incredible wealth of information she brings to bear. There's just a lot of material here. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of social policy. There's chapter about sex, there's a chapter about friendship, right? There's a lot. And she is working as cultural critic and kind of popular historian and um, political critic and all of these things, which she's very good at. But I, I did wish for a slightly stronger hand on the material in terms of answering some of these questions. So she starts the book by saying something really fascinating, which is that when you look at the last election, you know, it was really single women who helped Obama beat Romney. Well, I can't remember what the exact details are, but that you might think, oh, it was white women or this class of women, but it was actually specifically single women in both who, you know, who helped with this. And to me, one of the strongest parts of the book where the argument is really lucid and really compelling is this part where she's diagnosing a problem in our social policy, right? Which is that our assumptions about singleness and our, as you were saying, our kind of ongoing distaste, especially I'm saying our, but it's really the conservative ongoing distaste for single women, the ways that single women seem threatening to society, have shaped social policy in these kind of self-perpetuating ways. So she has a wonderful chapter, the one that you were just, you know, talking about, Katie, where she's talking about um, the conservative assumption that a marriage cure, as it were, were, you know, is a good policy for getting women out of poverty. And she really points out, well, no, we could have different social policy that actually, you know, 
black women are often stigmatized for being single mothers. You know, black women who end up being single mothers are often stigmatized as a you know sign of the perpetuation of the poverty cycle. And she's like, no, our social policy is a perpetuation of that. Like we could really, a lot of these women are actually making really, you know, <laughs> as one might expect, they're actually making self-interested decisions, which are, I don't know if this marriage, marrying the father of my child is a good decision for me or for my child, you know, and that to think otherwise is incredibly patronizing. And, you know, it's a really, it's a smart point that isn't being made enough in our country is not thinking enough about how can we actually change social policy to support this demographic that is a real demographic. You know, how can we have, you know, more family leave? How can we have more maternity leave? You know, all these things that would help everybody, honestly, but it's true that they might particularly help single people who may not have the same infrastructure that, you know, someone in a in a family has, but that doesn't mean that the solution is to marry someone who actually might not provide that support anyway. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that that's, I wanted, I wanted so much, well, I, I mean, we can talk about race, actually, just going off what you said for a little, for another second. Um, this is actually, I mean, the bar is low when it comes to this sort of stuff, but this is actually one of the most inclusive books I've read of, of its kind. It's sort of a like popular look at, you know, feminism and, and just sort of embraces and is interesting and intelligent about black women, brown women, poor women, um, and in a very organic way. That said, I wanted so much more about actually what does it mean to be a single mother? Like she talks a little bit about how we're coming into, you know, that this revolution means more options, it means more opportunities, it means different, more fat, like flexible structures of family and kinship. We don't really see a lot of that in the book. I think we see a lot of how uh I mean, I mean, it's fine. She, I think she cops to this also. You know, she does talk to women in media, women who she knows. And so we get a sense of, like, how singleness is sort of redefining their relationship to the city, their relationship to work and their friends. But, you know, when I think about poor women I know, I think about women in my family, I think about, especially about single mothers, and it's just like, you really do see interesting concessions, interesting organizations, interesting structures that build up of interdependency about how to raise children, how to go to work, how to move, how to find a house. And like a lot of that stuff, I was just like, I know it's there, and she knows it's there, and I wanted more of that granular detail. I wanted some of the characters, I think there's one Adoe, a Chinese immigrant woman she talks to, but I wanted more of them to emerge as substantive figures in their own right, the way that, say, she talks to the novelist Elliot Holt, or she talks to the journalist Anne Friedman, the way that they come across as, you know, interesting and complicated, and they contradict each other, they contradict her, but they're very fully fleshed. And I wanted more more characters like that that were on the margin, just explaining how you, how you do make it work. I just think it would have strengthened some of the arguments that she's making. I agree. And I think, you know, a challenge of this book is she set herself so big a task. You know, she could have written a book that was a kind of pay-in to, you know, white, mostly white, or certainly, let's say, like, upper-middle-class urban singleness, which is what the beginning of the book really feels like, right? It's sort of, you know, a celebration of the post-sexmacity life and the way that, you know, it's a kind of defense of, against these critiques of singleness. And I wondered whether you you guys read that and recognized parts of yourselves in it. Um, and then the book does shift to really be more inclusive. And yet, I agree, I feel like, and this is a lot to ask of her because she's already done so much, but in a way, if she's going to do it, she needs to one wants her to do it. And I felt exactly the same thing. Like I just wanted much more, you know, it goes, it's wonderful. It goes as far as it goes, but I did want more about these kinds of, because she called for quite explicitly at the end of the book, more structures of women serving women. And um, it's been very interesting. I'm actually about to have a baby. I'm not married, but I am with a committed partner. 
And it has been very interesting to me in the way certain things that she talked about in the book kind of propped up like I was just researching getting a birth certificate. And I didn't understand that my partner was not legally the father of my child until he signed another form consenting to be the father of my child. So you, know, you see how it's kind of still so embedded in the, you know, in the culture. But the point I'm going to say is I've been on all these message boards that um, are women who are giving birth to month I am. And one of the things that's fascinating to me about them is that they are so pluralistic and they have expanded my sense of the people I'm in touch with. So there's a lot of single women from all classes. There's a lot of married women who are the women who get married at 23 still. Um, you know, there's this pluralism of voices. And one of the things I really see is the way that there are these structures. You know, there's so many women doing this on their own just in the months that I'm, you know, lurking on. <laughs> And, you know, how they're doing it, what what steps they're taking, you know, some of them are in the countryside, some of them are in the city. These are present very different problems for each each parent. Um, So it would have been fascinating to to see more of that. Yeah, I also I kind of want to get to this issue of of child rearing and motherhood, because, um, I mean, one of the so intensely pregnant. (laughs) Exactly. I didn't want to out you, but I was about to say we're both about to have babies. I'm sure we have a lot of (laughs) thoughts. Well, one of the revelations for me, and this this is actually probably not applicable, but um, the the idea that you know, for all that conservative media narratives say that the single mother is um, anywhere from a monster to deluded, um, the idea that actually having a child, even when you're below the poverty line, can be this incredible act of agency and self fulfillment. And I mean, on one hand, that was just so fascinating to me. That, that, you know, choosing to fill your life uh, in that way, even if it's an economic hit to take, um, is an act of choice and an act of empowerment and something to be encouraged rather than disparaged. That was one thing. But it also sort of made me wonder, you know, she sees it as so troubling when a woman signs away her life to to take care of a husband. I mean, she does seem to have a lot of uh, acidic comments about that kind of life, although in other ways she's very inclusive. But to take care of a child, that is an act of agency. Um, And so I I was wondering, like, if you perceived attention there, or am I just, I don't know, giving her a hard time? I don't know if I saw attention there. I think think she definitely looks at marriage historically as being, like, a really bad bet for women. Um, I think that the point that she makes now is that as women are delaying marriage, that we are remaking it. We're making it better. We're sort of elevating it. We're saying that it's not just, I think she said in some interview, it's not just a warm body and a paycheck. You know, now if we can have children on our own, we can have a sex life on our own, we're asking more for marriage. I don't know if there's any way to really measure that or say that's entirely true, but I think that's sort of key kind of our argument. And going to the going to the point about having children, I mean, that's what this book feels so fresh because it does treat women as rational actors, poor women, rich women, <laughs> all women. It feels like such a radical thing to be like we're not just bumbling into these life decisions. Um, again, it's not a new point. I think it feels fresh because a lot of this research is sort of like gone underground or whatever, or the you know countervailing rhetoric is so strong. But I mean, I like this point. I think it's interesting. I think one thing that did trouble me to go on a mild tangent that you'll bring us back from is that. Um, so much of the book is synthesis, you know, and I was wondering as I was reading it, like, how much of it feels 
and I, I wondered this about both of you, like how much of it felt genuinely fresh, like how much of it felt new to you. I mean, I think it's very artful. I think it's very sort of uh, light-footed synthesis and sort of, again, the scope is insane. You know, the scope is everything from like how the electric, you know, light posts to, you know, Tinder have changed the status of single women. But I was wondering, um, were you surprised by anything you found in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question because at the beginning, I you know, and this connects to Katie's question at the beginning, I really didn't find very much that was new, perhaps because I've read a lot of the source material that she draws on, you know, Stephanie Kuntz's, you know, books and Christine Stancel and, and some, you know, we've also read, right, so many trend pieces about the single woman and this and that. I do think there is something that, that, and that's part of what I was getting at when I said I kind of wanted to feel her hand on the material, her metabolism of the material a bit more strongly. Look, I think this is a really tough topic to bring something new to. Um, I think in places she really does. It sometimes felt to me like we could boil down, though, what really is going on here to, like, you know, it's structural stupid, kind of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and one thing I've been really thinking about, and I have to say, I don't know if the book is as fresh as I wanted it to be, but I did find there to be something very useful in the synthesis of, and it would have been a more synthesis of more metabolism of, but in the range of material she's bringing together, I did find that it was making me think about my life, think about my choices in some ways that I hadn't quite as explicitly before. And it, it was partly due to that sheer massing of, of information and it's partly due, you know, to the fact that she does make these kinds of judgmental, judgment can't help creeping in even when she's trying to push it out, right, Katie? And, you know, I guess what I'm saying is one of the things that's down my mind that this book really made me think about, um, especially at the end, is I find it fascinating and the book is a bit like this itself, although it's pushing against it. I do find it fascinating that women are not much more assiduously pushing for the kinds of structural changes that are needed in this country. It is really interesting that we are sort of passively accepting while protesting, you know, the fact that there is no maternity leave. There is no, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment was never passed. The, you know, et cetera, the list goes on and on and on, right? Um, and, you know, you could say we've just, they're like, oh, it's not going to happen. But how does political change happen unless groups get organized? And it's just, it's one of the really fascinating things about this book is saying, yes, there's so much change. And yet there is this real absence of political action. I was just going to uh, return to what may or may not have been surprising in the book. I think that uh, there was a lot of, of uh, learning going on on the level of data. Like there is so many facts that I didn't know um, that crystallized things that thematically did feel intuitive or sort of in circulation already. Um, and also just historical things like at 26, women without spouses became thornbacks, which was a reference to a seascape with sharp spines covering its back and tail. Um, and I, I adore I that. that <laughs> yeah. Um, I but, love that detail. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that you're right. It doesn't always feel 
fresh from a like argumentative uh, standpoint. But I think part of that is because what she's wrestling with is so nebulous. Like basically, she's talking about what gives human lives meaning, and sometimes that's intimacy, and sometimes you know whether it's friendship or like who do you go to, who is your person, and sometimes it's work, and sometimes it's love, and basically, I mean, she's isolating these women's lives or like this uh, idea of a woman's life and saying, how do I fill this up as much as possible? What are the ways that like people move through the world and feel satisfied and feel happy? And how do we make that more uh, graspable for more people? And it just, I mean, it strikes me as an incredibly (laughs) broad uh, series of questions to ask and to put in a book. And to some extent, like the, the gender frame feels kind of arbitrary I mean, to me, it sort of raised all these questions about, like, well, what matters in a human life? Is it work? Is it love? Is it friendship? So, I actually thought she should have spoken more about bachelors and the history of bachelors, that that might have been an illuminating contrast, because I did find myself wondering how much of this is specific to the cultural conception of the, you know, the single woman aging with her cat, you know, how, Mm. how much of these, this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, which is like the kind of absence of some of the real loneliness and the difficulties of of being single. She has a great scene where um, Anne Friedman, a journalist, I think it's Anne Friedman, a journalist that she's, you know, been talking to and who's very gung-ho about singleness and has a friend who kind of serves as her companion, right? Um, but it's not a romantic relationship, but it's kind of has the headiness of it and they're each other's person. And Anne moves to L.A. and injures herself and then can't get out of the dress that she's in when she goes home from the ER and is alone and, like, loses it. And, you know, this was really interesting to me because I spent a series, a couple of years being very ill. And, and so these kinds of questions are very important to me. Um, you know, how do we create a culture that supports the ill, supports people who are on their own? And, you know, she one of the places where she actually acknowledges that singleness isn't great is when it comes to chronic illness, which is absolutely true. You know, it's very, very difficult to be chronically ill, and you have worse outcomes when you're single. So, um, but that's a really interesting tension there. Yeah, no, and I think that's, like, I think we were talking about that a little bit before and just wanting to see how people had, you know, again, like other structures of kinship and other structures of family. And I think at the very end, um, she actually ends on a, on a, series of bullet point policy recommendations mm-hmm. and which is very unusual and um I mean and kind of at least for me was very welcome instead of sort of like a general yeah. call to arms and call to action. She was like, no, here are twenty three things that we can do. <laughs> and uh, right. um and one of them was one of them that I thought was very beautiful was sort of uh calling for uh or even like asking for jobs and organizations to give, you know, single employees the gift of time. You know, like what we get as like maternity leave or, or she's just saying that it should be extended for it. You're taking care of a parent, you're taking care of your wife, your husband, your child, you know, you like we have to reconfigure things differently. So we don't always just see care as from, you know, parent to child. And, uh, and so stuff like that, I think anytime she starts to open up and sort of stretch some of these themes, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it is beautiful. I will say about that Anne Friedman scene though, it was funny to me, um, that that is also seen again from Sex in the City, and how many of the things that she talks about Sex in the City yeah. has gotten to first. Not just how I love, but it's really interesting to think about. Um, you know, at various points in the book, she's like, "Oh, this is something that hasn't been acknowledged," and I was like, "And yet there was a Sex in the City episode about it." So it's one of those things that you really realize that, like, as a culture, we are kind of uh, obsessed with 
vilifying single women, but also just talking about them generally. Look at, like, uh, with girls or with uh, um, even so much of Ferrante. So much of Toni Morrison is about women alone and women together. And uh, um, there really does seem to be this, maybe it is fear. Maybe, you know, society is frightened of of women without men. And uh, I'm curious. I don't know. But it was just like I just started to keep a little list at the back of the book when she was like, it's an unacknowledged sort of factor that some of women's primary relationships are with each other. And I just, in the margins, I've you know, written, like, really? And written this, like, long list of books and shows. And, you know, and we are just sort of endlessly fascinated um, by it. And then it makes sense, I think, even in the context of her book, when she describes how much single women have managed to get done, from abolition to prohibition to, you know, labor organizing. Like, it has been a potent force. Well, I, you know, I'm glad you said it, because I was really wondering what question I wanted to pose to you guys. You ladies, you people, you women. <laughs> was, um, you know, in an era when so much has changed, why? I know. Do we? Do you think single women still are threatening? And if so, why? You know, a moment that did leap out to me in the book was a moment where, an, as she puts it, an older, respected, you know, a mentor she respected, who was a man, said, "You need lots of juicy stories, basically about single women's sex lives, so that people read the book." Right. And she's very calm about this piece of advice. But I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I just, but then it made me think, God, oh, this really is like, even in a liberal milieu, like, this really is somehow still the way that there's something like distasteful about the single woman, or why would you read a book about the single woman, even if the book is explicitly saying single women as a group are a force that has shaped politics. So, yeah, I just wondered, um, you know, she has moments of lingering on girls and these other things, but what what do you two think about the force of single women today? And, and are we still scared of them as a culture? And if so, you know, what is it? Is it, is it as you're saying, that they're in fact so powerful? Gosh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think part of me just wants to say that, like, the magnitude of the rupture, like, I guess I feel like a lot of this book is Traster putting many, many things into a bag. Like here is uh, economic stability and here is emotional intimacy and here is um, fulfillment and life uh, self-actualization. So she puts this all in a bag. And then she says, um, for so long, that bag was named a husband. But then she unpacks the bag and says, well, actually, you can find this element here and this element there. And, and the husband who helps you carry your air conditioner up the stairs is now the taxi driver who takes pity on you when you're carrying the air conditioner. And, you know, so I think it just, it's revolutionary to imagine that this one fact of life could actually be dispersed among a lot of other different forces. And it's just kind of it was so all-encompassing, this this husband bag. <laughs> um, I, I'm overdoing this metaphor, probably. So I think there's something just revolutionary about that. Um, and, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer your question. I think it's a really, really, really good question, Megan. And I, I can't answer why, but I can definitely say that, just speaking for myself, like, there was something very strange, um, and I don't know if you felt this, this is something unique to me, but... Um, but especially when I got married and when I got pregnant, I, people's response to me changed. It was just different. And it was, it's very difficult to describe why. And like, I remember talking to a friend of mine, I think, and using the word legible. Like suddenly somehow like, I'm in this stage of life. I represent these things. Um, I'm sort of readable and doing these sort of full female fulfillment 
activities. I don't know what it is, but I'm checking off some boxes. And people just relaxed around me in a way that, like, I mean, I'm sure I make people tense for a lot of reasons, but, like, <laughs> in, this one, in this one aspect, no. I definitely felt like, um, yeah, and, like, there was, like, sort of, like, I would, strangers would talk to me about things, like, the stores opened and, like, sort of, like, getting advice and the sort of conviviality, and it felt very much like, you know, this was a designated, understood sphere of female existence that I was now in. And it was very surprising to me, and I enjoyed it, but I was incredibly wary of it, incredibly, um, yeah, I just found it strange, and I wasn't expecting that. I totally agree with you. Right? Nothing else, nothing else compared, nothing like, nothing professional I'd ever really achieved had done that. Yeah, and I, it was, it just came as a shock. It's really, it's really, and exactly, and I was thinking about this a lot reading the book because um, I'm having a child later in life because I also have this funny scenario where I was married, I'm not married, but I'm with the person I was married to. (laughs) You know, so I was thinking a lot about like how the question of marriage really doesn't matter that much to me, but to other people, I think it does. But, you know, also, yeah, there's something, it's like you say you're having a child, you're having a family and something like kind of world springs up around you that you kind of suspected existed and you were outside of, but like <laughs> when it's happening, you're like, Oh wow, it really exists. And like you, I, I was, I feel a little bit wary of it. And I wonder, you know, what is this? Is it just the celebration of new life, which, which is more benign, right? There's actually something positive about that, but there is yeah, yeah. a kind of reinforcement of a conservatism. And I think as you put it, it's really about legibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's clearly something about, you know, is even as we move to this pluralistic way of living, living, even as she says, you know, singleness puts pressure on marriage to be, you know, different, even as she says, oh, the point now is that we can be many things, we don't have to be married, there obviously still is this tendency towards a kind of more legible option. Um, I can't help wondering, too, if, I mean, one 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 explanation of the threat the threat of single women would be the sexual threat, right? That all of Western civilization has been about kind of legislating female sexuality, and you know, singleness is quite explicitly the non-legislation of female sexuality, right? But if you know, we think about Christianity and the story, you know, that's sort of a story about how do we explain this virgin birth, right? There's just so much so much of Western literature is about the you know, the virgin and the whore, the this and the that. So so one explanation of the threat we feel is just that, you know, these are women who are saying, no, I'm outside of that desire to legislate it, which we still see in, in social policy. But I think there's much more going on there. And I think, I, I can't help wondering, I would have been really curious to see her explore, like, and this is where maybe talking about bachelors would be interesting. You know, there is this cliche that women are more sociable, right? That you might be more likely to find the lone male, the solitary male, than the lone woman. Um, now, I say this as someone who actually quite likes solitude and being solitary, but, you know, it, it did wonder what, since she does so much research, you know, what the research about the sociability of women are, what the kind of communal, you know, is there a difference between the genders in terms of this kind of communal caretaking activity? You know, women traditionally are the caretakers of parents and children and family. And, you know, is that acculturation? Is that biology? Is it some mix of both? Like, what did she think about that would have, would have been interesting to me. I'm still depressed to think there's like this fairy tale that materializes once you <laughs> part- you have a partner and have a child. <laughs> I'm doomed. I'm tapping on the glass. 
it's, it's very strange, and it's not it's not all good. <laughs> yeah, it is strange, and you know what? It's okay to not be. It's okay to be on the outside of it. <laughs> okay. No, but it's it's totally it's totally real. It is there. Yeah. You know, and then you just become invisible. That once once the child is there, yeah. and you're no longer this like gorgeous exactly. second sort of symbol of maternity. <laughs> like, I'm still here, guys. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's true. I feel like it's the last moment of visibility, basically. Um, but I think your question is a really good one, Megan. And I think that, like, that's something that, again, like, you know, if men were included in the book, we'd get a sense of, you know, but it's it's really, it's hard to say where, she, you know, what she thinks about that, you know, given that so much of caretaking just automatically is the province of women. Um but it's so hard to know, right? Because, I mean, it's really easy. We start to tread in really dangerous, you know, I always think of it as the um, evolutionary psychologist area where they're like, you know, David Brooks being like, well, men like to shoot, you know, like <laughs> because they like planes where they can shoot, you know, bison yeah. and women like domiciles. I'm like, what? But, you know, so it's dangerous to wade into that territory. But I am interested in it, you know, as someone who... um you know, took care of my mom when she was dying and in a different way, I think, than my brothers who also were very present for her. Anyway, there's just, you know, it's, it's, these are real questions for how we shape the future. And obviously, I think anytime we talk about gender, we also have to remember that it's um, a spectrum. No, totally. And I think also so much of the just conversation around single women, around women is hinted on selfishness. Right? Yeah. It's so strange yeah. when you think about it. And I think an interesting point she makes in the book is that Again, I don't know how she measures this, but she's, she's sort of talking about how, um, to, and like, as somebody I'm very interested in, and not only just caretaking, like, in terms of families, but in terms of, like, you know, where does the line between the public and private blur? You know, where are you in your community? Where are you in your society? And so she says that the actual retreat doesn't come with having children. It comes with marriage, that single people actually, as you say, you know, like, look after their parents much more. They volunteer in the community much mm-hmm. more. And that's something that's interesting. And like, so lots of these moves that she does in the book, um, uh, again, like going back to that question of like what feels fresh or what feels necessary and special about this book, it's stuff like that. It's stuff that she's like the research that she marshals to say like it's very interesting that these women are called selfish when let's actually look at who does what. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it ties together one thing that it does very well and um, I think is really important and we need more of on this topic is it ties together a kind of examination, a, a kind of cultural criticism, which is look, this is how we tend to make a caricature of the single woman with actual data, right, and social policy research. And as you're saying, she comes up with very different takes that seem, frankly, much more accurate. I mean, I'm I'm biased. I'm not biased, but I would like to believe these things, but they do seem to really be true. As a media critic, she's great. And I think, again, going back to her, like, sensible doesn't seem like praise, but it's such a rare thing. Like, she's so good and she's so cool and temperate on um, issues of selfishness, for example. And I just love the chapter on sex and she's talking about hookup culture and she's talking about, mm-hmm. you know, so much ink is spilled and everybody's so upset and worried and she just talks about how she's like, hookup culture is ordinary. She was like, I was in college, it's ordinary heartbreak, ordinary frustration, does it favor the men? What doesn't? You know? Mm-hmm. Right. She just has this very, uh, this ease about it and this ease about talking about sex and even, um, you know, women in cities and women in fear, she's just, I mean, maybe it's also just a testament to how like, the conversation about women's sex and danger is just ratcheted up to crazy levels. So you can have somebody mm-hmm. just very coolly saying, actually, this is how it is. And it feels so, it feels so revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And I also appreciated how she, um, she lets 
the quotes that she includes sort of um, be her sense of humor at times. So, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there were a few. I loved uh, the person who said in the selfishness uh, chapter, for instance, um, you know, we must stop this worship of the brazen calf of self (laughs) on the part of the single (laughs) woman, which was just totally delightful. Uh, Also, when Elizabeth I says that um, she will not have children, thank you very much, hectoring parliament members, because basically you boys are my kids and I have to deal with all of you. Um, and you could sort of feel Rebecca Traster um, smiling at that, but but very, as you say, coolly and sensibly allowing her data to speak for her in a sort of winking way, uh, which I thought was great. And also just the wealth of examples that she draws on, not only statistically, but, you know, she talks about Gone Girl and the, 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 the gender politics of Gone Girl and how it acknowledges that marriage is a disappearance or, or an abduction and um, in some ways. And I just, I thought that she really was not um, limiting herself to any particular, you know, highbrow or middlebrow. She was open to so much information from all corners. So, yeah, I mean, and so many of these books they reference like Sex and the City, but not Living Single. Or they talk about Gloria Steinem, but not Carol's movie Brown. Like, it was mm-hmm. just really nice to hear just like the inclusion of black women, especially because so much of the conversation around, you know, what's seen as liberating in white women has been seen as pathology in black women, mm-hmm. right? And she makes that point that, like, right now, like, this whole liberation of, like, women in work or women in, you know, single motherhood, let's look at how, like, let's look at who pioneered it, how were they written about, how were they treated, you know? Or even this conversation about domesticity, you know, white women found it stifling, but she has this great phrase, black women were explicitly, actively barred from having domestic lives, mm-hmm. barred from yeah. having homes, yeah. barred from having legal families. So a lot of this stuff, um, again, I think it's Meg also made this point, it's just like the scope of the book is huge, but it also really does bring in um, so many other actors, so many other conversations and people. And I think Rebecca Carroll reviewed this book very well in the LA Times, and she said that, again, I'm paraphrasing, she was like, she was like it's kind of madness that I have to praise this book for this kind of inclusion when, you know, this should just be the norm when you're talking about... yeah constructions of American femininity and womanhood, Mm -hmm. you know, that one does not exist without the other. White women don't exist without black women. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, I really thought that middle part of the book where she starts to talk more explicitly about race and she talks about a lot of things you just touched on. I thought that was pretty great. There were some just like the way she rephrased these kind of hardened positions was so deft and smart and spot on and just you're like, how can we be having a conversation on the terms that we still are? Yeah. You know, and that was really a service the book did. Um, are there other topics that you guys want to touch on? We could talk about friendship or... Um... I guess before we go, I would just say, I think one thing that, and I wonder how you two felt about this, but felt about this, but one thing I thought this book did really well or, or did for me is that sometimes when I read books about women's lives, they just end up making me feel incredibly anxious in one form or another. And so much that's written about women's lives, as we've talked about, is prescriptive in one way or another. And one thing I really liked and appreciated about this book was, you know, the capaciousness, not just of information, but of how it was thinking through different issues. And although at times I thought maybe it could allow for even more of that, I thought she really was and this goes back to the sensible thing. She really was trying to think through the many stages of a woman's life and the fact that a woman's life may contain very many different things, not all at the same time, right? And unfortunately, the dominant discourse about women's lives is this constructed idea of 
balance, right? Work-life balance and, you know, don't have kids too late or, you know, don't find yourself unable to have children if you want to, right? There's so much sort of fear-mongering in how we talk to women about getting in relationships, about being in relationships, about sex, about their, you know, everything, right? And one thing that really I came away from this book thinking is that the the challenge for a woman, any woman, is to have a life that feels whole to her, right? And that wholeness comes in different forms at different times. And that is one of the things this book I don't think it's a point that it's trying to make, but it's one of the things that, one of the points it ends up making is that, you know, there's many ways for a woman's life to be whole and those ways might look different at different times. And unfortunately we live in a country that does not have social policies that facilitate that particularly. Yeah. I mean, that's beautifully put. And I think even, um, you know, I open by saying, so is it better to be single or married? But I think the book itself sort of uses the life trajectory of the single lady to say that, you know, it isn't either or. Um, people are definitely marrying later, but that doesn't mean that when they get older um, or at some point in their life when they decide that it's the right time, um, these single lady ladies become married ladies. And and in the same way, there are people who marry young and get divorced. And it did, I loved her metaphor of instead of just a single highway that all women are are shuttled down, um, there are off ramps, there are byways, there are alleys. And I thought she did a great job of sort of tracing each of those paths. Um, so would you guys recommend this book to our readers? Uh, I would, yeah, I would absolutely recommend the book. I think, um, uh, like, I think this book is part of, it's not a new genre, but, like, it's part of a suite of books I've seen this year doing sort of, like, blending, like, memoir and cultural analysis. Like, you've seen, I think it's Kate Ball's book, Spinster. There's a book called um, Labor of Love by Moral Weigel. There's a book coming out called Future Sex by Emily Witt. Like, so lots and lots of books sort of generally, I think, written by straight white women sort of looking at the circumstances of their lives and how they fit into history, how they fit into what America has promised or denied women. Um, and it's a very interesting genre. I think people are going to continue writing like this and sort of personal and political and, you know, big and small at the same time. But I just think that this book is, to use my like least favorite review cliche, but it's very desk. It sort of does a lot very lightly, very easily. Um, getting away from like its message and just sort of talking about how it's written and how it feels to read it. She just has like a really nice command of the material, I think. And, uh, and as Megan said, like it's just really lovely and rare to read something that treats women like rational actors <laughs> and uh, uh, isn't trying to frighten anybody, isn't trying to shame anybody. Um, is just kind of gorgeously sensible and has like uh, you know a tremendous amount of history. And again, does she fulfill every single promise that she makes with the introduction? Maybe not, but it's it really does do a number of different things. Um, just very well. And yeah, I mean, again, like I'm somebody who didn't need to be persuaded of the argument and still found it in very refreshing in, in so many ways to read. So yeah, I would totally recommend it. Yeah, me too. And I really, you just said it so beautifully. I don't have anything to add. I think all of those things are absolutely true about the book. And it just feels like she's a really good companion, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in a book about companionship and what it might mean um, and non-companionship. But Finding other kinds of companionship, you know, really, she's a she's a really good companion on the page. Um, I found I just I very much trusted her. I trusted her to be trying to find out what was true, not just having an agenda. And and that's why I brought up sensible because here it's it's the extraordinary virtue of this book. 
Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I also really appreciated how she positioned single women not as, I mean, on one hand, she's saying that they are a demographic that's worth paying special attention to. But a big part of her argument is also that, you know, when this group is elevated, I mean, this is in the interests of America at large. And so, you know, we're all sort of working together. And when the fortunes of single ladies uh, go well, so goes the country. And I, I thought that was also kind of a lovely takeaway uh, to togetherness and cooperation. <laughs> um, on that note, thank you guys so much for uh, joining me. This was really fun. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Megan. Bye-bye. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Megan O'Rourke and Parul Segal, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. 